This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello. Well, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm discussing recovery when a parent was rageful. I want to talk today about the nuance of healing if you grew up with one or more ragers in your home. And if you're new to the show, welcome. I use my story and my experience. I've been a therapist and a life coach for almost two decades. My specialties are childhood trauma, grief and loss, addiction, and highly sensitive people. When it comes to being raised by someone who rages, I find that there's a lot of confusion There's a lot of self-dismissal, minimization, and then guilt and shame. So I'm going to try to explain and break that down. I also want to use this episode and this topic to say that I am against the idea that words are violence. I don't think that helps us the way that the intention of that teaching intends. Words can be aggressive. They can be abusive. Words and language can be harsh, mean, can be severe. But words are not violence. Violence is physical force. This is really important to me, not because I'm word policey, but because this drives depression and fragility. We're having a depression and a suicide problem in this country and in the world right now. Young people, if you're out there listening, this idea that words are violence that I'm against, this idea will not help you to say it because if words are violence and then if silence is violence, this means that we're surrounded by potential violence constantly. If I wrote a book called How to Be Anxious and Neurotic in the World, naming words and silence as violence would be part of the how-to advice. Even a verbal assault is different than a physical assault. We do not get to redefine words to fit our worldview. Let violence be physical violence and let words and silence be words and silence. We also have the saying that sometimes silence is golden and sometimes silence is wrong, but never is silence violence. And as always, do your own experimenting of the world. Do not take what I say as truth. What I'm offering is a perspective based on my professional and personal experience. I'm bringing you insight 
and expertise, never take an expert's word over your own thinking. Allow your own discernment because this is your one precious life and you are responsible for all of it. As an adult, you are. Anyone who needs you to believe them is likely rocking some kind of ego problem. I don't need you to agree with me. I offer my perspectives, but I genuinely want you to think for yourself. This is very, very important to me and to my work because I work with so many people and myself have recovered from being master manipulated. So if you grew up with manipulation, this is especially important to learn how to process through your own wisdom and not give your power away just because other people use the word expert or have an authority in the room or in the relationship because of their experience or professionalism. This is a very important thing to consider if you grew up with manipulation to help you become your own authority figure as a source of safety, grounding, and security. Also, trauma is an unfortunately overused word and term now. At the beginning of my career, the fight as a therapist in mental health was to reduce stigma. There was tremendous shame around surviving trauma, being labeled as a trauma survivor, as someone who was traumatized. Now I find myself seeing people use trauma as identity, sometimes for internet points, for popularity. When mental illness or traumatic emotional injury becomes identity, this becomes an anti-incentive to heal. It becomes a strong invitation to stay stuck, to stay symptomified. It's a way to stay wounded, to stay small when our identity becomes our wounding. I am diametrically opposed to watering down the word trauma or identifying with trauma as a lifestyle or as a personal identity. It's a fine line between getting support out there in the world versus making friends and having a community that celebrates illness or stuckness or victimhood. Because trauma makes us sick, y'all, it really, really does. But because it makes us sick, once we're infected, it is our job to eradicate that sickness, that illness, those effects from our own lives. Nobody will show up and do it for us. If they would, I would be beating that drum and I'd say things like, just wait for somebody to show up and heal you and save you. I can say this because I was honestly made sick by the trauma I experienced as a child. It fried my nervous system. It gave me a deeply wounded sense of worth. It broke my people picker, y'all. I moved through life like a lost shaking bunny a lot of the time, as if there were constant eagles and hawks flying overhead. That's how PTSD feels, and it brings with it anxiety and depression. These are terrible sicknesses to have as a lens, as a mindset, as a mood for life. Healing is in part an intentional rejection of what was accidentally learned, what accidentally became a sickness in our minds and in our bodies. I don't have post-traumatic stress today. I spent 15 years of my life with professionals reinforcing the fact that I would just always have all of the post-traumatic stress symptoms. It's part of why I share my story and why I 
as an introvert, put my story out there. Because I don't believe that that is a good message to give as a mental health professional to any person in recovery. If you are listening and you are healing a dysfunctional childhood, I want you to know that you get to believe in your own ability to heal. You get to let go of what never did or no longer serves you. You get to transcend a survival mode and learn what it is to thrive. You get to believe that you can have more healing than you think or feel is possible right now. And when you can't think that for yourself, please use me, what I'm offering, my story, to help yourself break down that healing feels impossible to you. Healing is possible. Sometimes our feelings are liars, and that is a time and a place when our feelings will lie to us. You are not doomed because you had a tough childhood. You can reparent, you can heal, you can move forward. Healing from a rageful home has a lot of nuance. That's what I'm going to try to break down today in today's episode. What we want to do here is realize what a rageful parent's energy taught our minds and our bodies. It teaches us to be absolutely hypervigilant as a survival strategy. That's a very smart thing that our systems do for us. We don't even know that that's what we're developing as we're developing it because this human being system that we were born with, that we were born into, takes care of us in some ways that we don't have to know how to define. It doesn't take constant physical abuse in a home or obvious abuse like getting hit with bricks or having a chair broken over a back. These are kind of no-duh blatant physical abuses. Nobody wonders if they're physically abused if these types of physical assaults are happening. But a rager may or may not physically hit. A rager may or may not throw things. But if they have, even once, they don't need to be physical to have a child's body brace for that potential of violence Once we learn that there is a potential of someone getting violent, someone getting scary around us, for a small child, we will have the same chemicals flood through our bodies, whether or not violence is happening or not in the moment when it has been historical. This sort of rageful tension as a home lifestyle teaches a child to be constantly inside of tension in a fear response, in a freeze, fight, flight, or fawn response at the level of an activated nervous system. And that nervous system inside of you, me, all of us, learns to sense danger very, very well. This is what brings on a hyper vigilance. Yes, as human beings in the world, having a certain amount of vigilance, especially when we're outside of our homes, when we're out there out in the world, is smart. Being hypervigilant is exhausting. Healing is an unraveling of what our bodies learned to feel and a reteaching of calm, of peace, of centeredness, of reasonable vigilance instead of exhausting hypervigilance. Because the truth is when we're hypervigilant, we wind up missing important things. 
You ever pull like an all-nighter to get a paper done for high school or college? You make mistakes that you don't even catch because you're trying so hard. You're so exhausted, but trying to get something done. And that's basically what hypervigilance does for us. It's like a false sense of security. We pay so much attention that we have to start missing some things, but we don't realize that from that hypervigilant state. And the inner child inside of us, the best safety he or she has ever felt is in that hypervigilant state. So it's a hard thing, but it's a necessary thing to teach our inner child, hey, sweet girl, hey, sweet boy, I don't want to live all of life in that state. We actually miss some things. It's not as safe as we've told ourselves it is. This is work that takes time, it takes patience, and it takes a cultivation of self-love, often that we didn't get if we were raised in a home where there was a lot of rage or a lot of dysfunction, a lot of chaos, or a lot of neglect. In my own story, my biological father and my mother were ragers from my birth until I was six when they split. My mother played up as a battered woman, and in fairness, there could have definitely been male-on-female violence that happened that I didn't see, because that's always the truth. From a child's perspective, we cannot know or see everything that happens behind closed doors or in the adultness of their relationship. But the truth of what I actually did see was not some little woman being beaten by the big, bad, stronger man like we think of as stereotypical straight relationship abuse between a man and a woman. It's easy for our minds to conjure up that picture from a lifetime of movies and TV and stereotypes around this dynamic. I witnessed two grown adults throw down violently with each other. Once we lived with my grandmother and my biological father was out of the picture, my mother took her rages out on her children. She didn't punch me in the face. She never drew blood. She didn't put cigarettes out on my skin. Therefore, I didn't know that what I was living with, what she had been doing as her parenting style, was actually aggression. I thought what happened to me was discipline because that's what I was told. That was my mom's discipline style from her perspective. Abusers don't typically know that they're being abusive. They justify it to themselves first to be able to do what's abusive. And then they justify it to their children. So we grow up with stories of these things being okay, being normalized when they are most certainly not okay. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, 
now live on all podcast platforms. Many ragers hide behind an authoritarian parenting style. This gives them permission to justify their harshness as it leans from harshness or strictness into the land of abuse. My mom's face terrified me when she was rageful. She'd get centimeters away from my face and scream at maximum volume. Her eyes would damn near pop out of her head. Her face would be beat red. Her screaming spittle would be all over my face and I was not allowed to back away or her rage would spike. Often her go-to move was to poke me in the breastbone and she'd walk me around the house. I'd walk backwards as she poked me very hard in the breastbone. Sometimes there were little fingertip round little bitty tiny bruises on my breastbone that nobody could have seen. She'd scream. She'd grab me by both arms and lift my weight off the ground. Once we left my grandparents' house and she remarried, she took to punching walls when she'd get angry. So because I didn't get hit with a closed fist that drew blood from my nose or my lip, it didn't register for me how scary this was for my growing nervous system as a human being. Think about what this type of adult behavior, this type of rageful energy, this out-of-control aggression teaches a small human being. Today, in my big grown-up body, if a person tried to pull this energy with me, if they came at me with this energy, I could handle that much differently than I could as a child. Today, everything in my consciousness knows because I've taught it that it can leave. I can talk back. I can step back. I can call the police if I need to. I can scream. I can fight back if they lay hands on me in any way. Now I know that this type of behavior from another adult is their bad behavior. I know because I've worked on it that my worth is not wrapped up in their behavior that some adults never grow up, never learn to contain themselves, and they take their feelings out on other people as verbal or physical assault. The tension in homes with a rager tends to be off the charts, and that tension is often what creates such a constant and deep sense of hypervigilance and post-traumatic stress within that growing child's body that they take with them into their adulthood. Very hard, I find, for my therapy clients or my coaching clients to put their finger on and name that tension, the constancy of that tension in the home is what had such a profound effect. Very different than the very moments. Believe it or not, the moments that a rager loses their cool, we actually experience a relief within the fear which sounds completely backwards, counterintuitive, and almost impossible. Here's how that works psychologically. In that moment that my mom punches a wall, even if it's near my head, but not hitting my body, in that moment, it's like the moment that a rocket actually launches. If we watch um, a spaceship go up into the air, we all kind of naturally have a little sigh of relief, especially if we grew up seeing the Challenger explode, that that we see that rocket actually launch off and get into the sky. Well, when a rager finally rockets or launches off, there's almost a relief like, okay, here it is. 
this tension I've been feeling, this anticipatory anxiety of when are they going to blow? When is this rage going to launch? In the launching, there's actually some relief. Like, all right, here it is, finally. We actually might sigh some relief in the moment of getting hit or that wall getting punched. It's a very hard thing to make sense of internally and a very hard thing to put words to, whether you're journaling that out for yourself or working with a professional in mental health. Another sad truth about living with a ranger as a child is that at best, the tensions might come down from a constant level 10 to about a level 5. But when you learn that somebody can pop off for almost no reason, there's no way that the tension comes down to a zero, a one, or a two. Think about what that does to a developing human being. Think about what kind of tension that teaches a growing body. Think about how it feels in terms of level of exhaustion over different seasons of a life when the tension level in our sanctuary space, what's supposed to be our sanctuary space, our very homes, never feels sanctuary-ish, never zeroes out on that tension scale. A way we might consider this idea is, what would it do to us if we were born and a song started playing and that song constantly played? Sometimes the volume was louder, sometimes the volume is lower, but that song never, ever, ever, ever stopped playing, never turned off. We never got a moment of silence, of quiet, or changing the channel and hearing a different damn song. How wearing would that be? There would never be a moment where somebody would describe to me that the song was abusing them, that they were traumatized by the song by the sound or the lyrics of that song. But we can really understand how wearing on our systems it would be to never have that quieted, a break from that sound. Our bodies feel the tension in a rageful home in a similar way. So here are some tasks that I want to name to help you focus your healing if you grew up with all or part of your parenting style coming from rage. One of the things we must understand and do, it is a doing for ourselves, is we must learn how to be around upset and help ourselves feel safe. Because it is human for us to be upset. We are not emotional robots. We are people. And there are a lot of forces playing on us in any given moment, internally and externally. We have to learn that it's normal and okay for ourselves and other people to have upset feelings. Upset is not the same as being traumatized. Upset is not the same as someone assaulting us. We all say and do hurtful things to ourselves and to other people over the cross of a lifespan. It is an inevitability. It is normal. Now, the fact that I'm saying it's normal doesn't mean permission to hurt yourself and other people, but we have to understand that this is the human condition. We have to normalize that and we have to recalibrate ourselves to a certain amount of okayness, of groundedness, of calm, of peace around 
the inevitability of our own and others' upset. All right, next tip. We get to learn what it is to be empathetic. A lot of you listening would say that you're empaths, right? I am an empath. We must learn what it is to be empathic with someone near and dear to us who is upset without taking on the burden of that person's upset. Fine line, right? Nuanced line. Okay, this is where we start to learn, oh, I have to be able to care about people without codependently trying to manage or take away their upset for them, which ultimately becomes a self-appointed codependency job and creates a self-appointed expectation that you have to do somebody else's process for them. You have to move through their hard-earned wisdom and lessons for them, which robs them of their own hard-earned wisdom. If you try to transmute somebody else's pain for them, you're not doing anything for them. You're actually avoiding your own life, your own work. This is part of why codependent, highly sensitive people report such deep exhaustion. Because what a directive to tell the self to manage another person's whole world of emotional process that it is right to save others from their own life, their own decision-making, and their own consequences emotionally and physically. That's way too much. That's a crazy expectation, and yet it's very easy to slide into when you're raised in a dysfunctional home. On some level, the inner child in us believes it's easier to just meddle in somebody else's life for the greater good than to step back, zoom out, and take responsibility for our own lives. It is plenty just to take responsibility for our own lives. And when we do, we are helping and loving the people around us because that translates energetically, emotionally, in unspoken ways as, hey, people around me who care about me, you don't ever have to be burdened because I am taking the responsibility of my own life. I appreciate your help and your support but you get to be a support beam in my life, not a load-bearing beam. So over time, we learn to recalibrate to what is a reasonable amount of support and what is an unreasonable amount of load-bearing carrying of somebody else's responsibility. The more that we work with finding a reasonable groundedness and let go of codependent strategies, the more we are opening to this idea that life within ourselves is a constant negotiation and good relationships outside of ourselves with other people take constant negotiation. Very often I find that the inner child is driving this idea and our romantic comedy movies don't help us any, but often the inner child, the ideal the idealistic part inside of us is driving this idea that, oh my gosh, if I'm in a good relationship, he'll just get me. And then I just won't even have to say these things because we'll just get ourselves. And that's what a good relationship is. That is such horseshit. A real mature adult grown-up relationship takes more negotiation, more verbal expression. Why? Because the longer we're together, the easier it is to slide into making a whole lot of assumptions because we've been with that person so long, because we know that person so well. So actually, we can have more miscommunication from assumption 
the longer we're in even a great relationship. So we learn to let go of that immature idea that just brings us struggle because it's not the real way that a grown-up human works. When we understand this and embrace this in our psychology, this is how our lives get easier. The negotiation doesn't get, doesn't get to go away. We learn to be better negotiators. That's how we have better relationships with ourselves and each other. All right. This is a sentiment that is a big sort of ha-ha funny joke in dysfunctional families. And some of you may have this ha-ha funny joke in a lighthearted way in healthier family systems. So don't take this as always as dysfunctional as it's about to sound as I describe this dysfunctional piece of this common joke. This joke of, ooh, if mama's not happy, nobody in this house is happy. My mother would do that joke. And we would very nervously laugh about that joke because of that never below level five tension. So this joke, ha ha, if one, one adult isn't happy in the home, nobody's going to be happy. You better make me happy. Can you hear the codependent teaching in that? That if somebody else is upset, you're not allowed to be okay? Maturity says that if, if I'm really upset, I don't want somebody who loves me to be just as upset as me. I don't want to spread my upset to the people in my world. I appreciate if they empathize with me. I appreciate if they're willing to help me. But I don't want them to feel the weight of a burden that I'm feeling just because I'm feeling it. Dysfunctional immaturity distributes pain. Maturity and groundedness, self-respect owns that pain, allows for help, and works to release their own pain. We get to learn to have boundaries. This is why I'm so big on boundaries. And we don't have it up yet. You can't sign up for the 2023 boundaries course yet, but we'll have that up in the next coming months. You'll hear me announce that. There's a wait list to sign up so that you can get the alert that the boundaries course is open. So if you'd like that, come to emotionalbadass.com and make sure you're signed up on the boundaries course waiting list. But this is part of why I am such a big advocate of healthy boundaries. Because we have to learn how to reject this energy if we grew up with these teachings. Self-respect requires the learning and the integration of these emotional boundaries that define where I start and stop and where you start and stop. We get to learn how to negotiate where we overlap when we come together. And we learn to let even the ragers and the perpetually stunted adults in immaturity we learn to let them be responsible for themselves and we learn how to not allow them to dump their upset onto our shoulders. And then we walk around carrying the weight of that upset. This is part of why we call narcissistic personalities energy vampires because they know how to suck our energy and dump their emotional burdens onto other people. They walk away feeling lighter and energized we sit there feeling squashed, exhausted, depleted. This is part of why we learn how to have emotional boundaries. Another thing we get to learn, it is a gift to have the opportunity and the possibility to be able to learn it, is that we get to embrace our own imperfection. We get to learn how to make mistakes without emotionally, verbally attacking and critically shaming ourselves. I call this embracing our own humanity. 
underneath the teachings of a rager, we learn to try to be perfect. This is often the birth of perfectionism because it's such a sadly innocent, sweet little child idea that we come to. We decide in that little child season of our lives from our limited wisdom that doing the best we can is, oh, I'm going to try to be perfect. I can reduce the stress in this dynamic if I am just perfect. If I get everything right all the time, then my parent won't rage and then everybody will feel safer. Everybody will be happier. So I'll just be perfect. I'll be the little do-gooder of everything that is ideal. This is where we learn to overfunction, to codependently try to manage others for our safety, our security, our groundedness. No wonder so many of us lean anxiously attached. We wind up feeling so exhausted moving through life in this way. It's okay to make mistakes. If no one has ever said that to you, let me be the first to very clearly tell you it is not just okay to make mistakes. It is necessary. We have to make mistakes because we're all born into this world not knowing much of anything. So we have to make a whole lot of mistakes to learn what does work as much as what doesn't work and to move more towards what does. We must make those mistakes and embrace those mistakes. In healthier family systems, this is absolutely taught from a young age. You spill that glass of milk and that sweet mama or that sweet daddy comes in and goes, oh my goodness, what an opportunity. I can show you how we pick up this spilled milk. Let's go get some towels. Let's go get some spray cleaner. You're going to learn how to pick this up today. And it becomes a teachable moment in a dysfunctional home. That's not a teachable moment. That's a shame moment. So mistakes become fodder for shame instead of teaching you how to be a more effective person. This is what we reclaim in our healing. This is similar, but a little different, but I want to name it because this is part of the nuance of healing when you've grown up with rage. We're spongy as children and we're extra spongy as highly sensitive people. If you sponged up a parent's rage and you rage, well, you get to wring that out. And that is your task. That is your responsibility. And when you rage, you get to learn how to appropriately own that because you didn't see a parent appropriately own it. You need to learn what that is and how to properly, and I mean properly, apologize. In dysfunctional homes, we tend to either get absolutely no acknowledgement and apology or we get a dysfunctional apology, which typically is, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? But it's empty. So that I'm sorry winds up meaning, even though it's not said, it winds up meaning, hey, I'm going to say I'm sorry again, which is basically free pass because I'm just going to do this behavior again because I haven't really learned anything about how to be different. So we're just in this pattern together and this is part of the pattern. Right now we're in the part of the pattern where I say I'm sorry. You take that from me because it's the best you've ever gotten and you think it's okay when it's not. And we're going to do this again, aren't we? That's not a healthy apology. And we have to deal with the reality that that's what we learn in a dysfunctional home. So you get to learn what a healthy apology is. A healthy apology has a strong I'm sorry plus this is how I'm going to not do this to you or to me again. 
And then you actionably actually do those very things to show yourself that you're doing them and to show anybody who's in your world that that sorry is not an empty phrase in your self and in your family dynamic. This is how we break cycles of abuse, y'all. It's brave. It's courageous. Don't let the shame of seeing yourself act as your parent keep you in the shame, which will keep you acting like your parent. You get to transcend. You get to evolve. You get to leave what no longer serves you or never did behind. Okay, here's the last tip I'm going to share to help focus your healing around this dynamic. You are lovable. Do you need to hear me say that again? You are lovable. You are important because you exist and are alive. You get mad at people sometimes, right? It's easy to get mad at people. You can get mad at somebody you don't even know driving home, right? Somebody driving badly in traffic. I watched my husband get mad at the snow because damn it, he had to go out there and shovel it. We get mad at all kinds of things, rational and irrational. The feeling of being upset, irritated, aggravated is so human. I would bet good money that every time you get mad or aggravated or irritated at somebody, that you don't want them to die or be obliterated from the earth. You don't want them to feel their worth as zero, nothing. You get mad at people sometimes and then you get over it and you still like and love them. What a human thing that we still like and love people that can sometimes infuriate the ever-loving hell out of us. When we grow up with a rager, the inner child is so frightened of love being taken away or of an adult's rage having meaning. We make meaning to try to make sense of what's going on as children, and sometimes we take that meaning into our adulthood in a way that absolutely does not serve us. As a child, we are what we call in psychology egocentric. This is what makes a baby just scream when they're wet or they're hungry or they're tired or they're cold. That baby is egocentric. It is all about themselves. That baby is going to scream to get their needs met. They don't care if their mama is absolutely exhausted. They don't care. They are not aware if their mama has postpartum depression. They don't know if that birth was an easy birth, a hard birth. For the sake of human survival since the beginning of time, we are developmentally egocentric for a time in our childhood. When people don't grow out of that, hello, narcissism. Most of us grow out of it, thank goodness. But because of that egocentrism, we can't help but make meaning that says to us, because my parent rages, it means something about me. Something is broken. Something is not good enough. Something is worthless. Their rage defines me. In healing, we unravel that. In healing, we must let go of that and we must come to, I am lovable. I am lovable if somebody is mad at me. I am just as lovable when they're not mad at me. I am just as lovable when somebody is upset with me for a good reason. And I am just as lovable if they are upset at me for a ridiculous reason or a reason from their own stuff that has nothing to do with me. I am likable and I am lovable no matter what. If there's things I don't like about myself, I can work on those things. We must normalize our own lovability and take away that meaning that our inner child made so long ago. We unlearn this association with another's rage having any meaning about our worth. 
our lovability, our lives. We learn that people can be upset around us or with us, and we get to stay whole. We get to stay solid. We get to stay grounded. We can really hear the anxious attachment style in what I'm saying right now. Our anxious attachment style is looking for someone to reassure us that we're lovable, that we're worthy. When we work on becoming more securely attached to ourselves and with ourselves, which is entirely possible, we start to internalize and hold on to the feelings of our worth that can stay with us. We get to learn that we get to be an imperfect, messy human too, and so do other people. That we are lovable, we are loved, we are loving, we get to be cherished and cherishing of ourselves and with ourselves, and we get to feel safe even with an upset. If we are currently having adult relationships with abusive, immature types who don't know how to take responsibility for themselves, this will likely be a tough one. This will get triggered a lot. Please know that healthier people are available to have relationship with. And can very much help us with this dynamic. This is a hard truth that I find that mental health and therapy does not like naming. That our hurt often comes from our interactions with people. And this means that our healing often comes from our interactions with people too. That can be a little scary. Because this sentiment, if it resonates with you, basically means that I can't do all my healing myself in a bubble. And I would very much like the control of that sometimes, wouldn't you? I think sometimes mental health would like that to be true too. But please don't feel powerless when I say that. Like, oh no, I don't have enough people in my life. I'm not going to be able to heal. Oh shit. Healing isn't a light switch. It's a process. And in truth, it becomes a lifestyle. In a lifestyle of healing, you will undoubtedly be brought to healthier people. You will bring yourself to healthier people. And I can prove it to you right now, even without knowing you. Why? Because here you are. Your seeking towards healthiness brought you to me, my show, this episode, this very moment. My sweet husband, who is the producer of Emotional Badass Chris, and in my household, he is known as the best man in the world. I tell him as often as I can that he is the best man in the world because for me, he is. He has been tremendous in helping me solidify in my body what my mind has known for a long time. Because our minds are faster learners, y'all. Our bodies take a longer time to integrate and learn our head knowledge and make it body knowledge, heart knowledge. I knew for a long time that it was okay in my head knowledge for people to be upset with me. And that upset doesn't mean that I am all of a sudden kicked out of someone's heart like trash left out for garbage pickup. It's only through the totally normal and natural upsets that are inherent in cohabitation and being truly intimate with another that my husband, Chris, with his messaging, with his security, with our actions together as a couple to repair any upsets, any arguments in our relationship that I have felt my body feel what my mind has known for so many years. That I can feel and be safe when another grown person is upset with me. I can feel safe when I've upset me. 
And if another person's inner child is upset and lashing out at me, because that's what happens even in fantastic relationships, I can give grace and I can practice not taking their upset or my own personally. And it's such a better strategy than how younger me would use the upset of others to create negative meaning about my worth or my lovability or how secure I'm allowed to feel as a human being on this planet. It doesn't have to be in romantic relationship that we find this healing. We have lots of ways to be intimate. My work with people is intimate. I am an intimate player in their lives because they allow me to be. We can have intimacy with friendships. We can have intimacy with our teachers, our therapists, our pastors, or our spiritual leaders, our friendships, even our pets. I very much hope that there is something in this episode that helps you hold on to yourself with more compassion, more clarity, more personal responsibility, and more maturing grace for yourself and for other people. The last live stream on, at our Patreon, you can find it at patreon.com backslash emotional badass, was on dysfunctional relationships. And it is up there waiting for you if you would like to come listen to that. It is going to be up there in one of my favorites out of all the live streams we've done so far. I very much appreciate the honesty, the deep vulnerability of all of you who participate. I believe that I have healed my own life by marinating in what's healthy more than any one therapeutic technique or one therapeutic strategy or any one book out there. Healing a dysfunctional childhood is truly a reparenting venture. It takes intention. It takes diligence. It takes patience and practice and time. And it takes a village. This is why I wanted to do a show. And our Patreon is an extension of this show. It is a smaller, more intimate community of people who are just in this healing journey. We are in it to win it. We are seekers and we will not settle until we have the peace that our grown-up selves and our inner children absolutely were born deserving. This week, here it comes, y'all gonna hear me choked up. This week is the five-year anniversary of launching this show. Five years, y'all. I don't know where the time went. I blinked and here we are at five years. We have never missed a weekly episode And we've given a bonus episode exclusively monthly on our Patreon since the very beginning. I remember how scared I was to just begin. And I think that's such a big secret of life that when you feel called to do something, you don't know exactly why or exactly what or how it's going to turn out or how you're going to do it. But to just begin is such an important self-respecting permission to just begin. Because once you begin, you just kind of keep going. You build a momentum. And to turn around and see five years later, an entire body of work that has touched nearly every corner of this earth, I can't even wrap my head around the expansiveness of that. Y'all have heard me, especially those of you who have been listening to the beginning, talk about the expansive quality of what happens when we walk a healing path, when we dedicate ourselves to letting go of what no longer or never did serve us. And when you begin, you turn around and all of a sudden it's like, wow, look how far I've come. I feel that way about my healing. 
I feel that way about my life. I feel that way about my work and this show. And I am so grateful that I never gave up. Please do not ever let the give up gremlins be fed in your head, in your life. They are gremlins. They are wrong. They can be eradicated. They can be squashed. They can be stomped. They do not get to drive your life. I want to thank all of you who have shared the show. A very recent review that was written said they are a podcast pusher of our show. And man, if I can get behind any kind of pushing, that is the kind of pushing I will get behind. Thank you to those of you who have pushed our show all the way around the world. Thank you to our Patreon supporters and our community that feels so cozy, so beautiful, so sincere in the maturing of our inner children to become the people that our inner children deserved to have. Since the beginning of this show, we have hit top 50 in mental health, and at times we still hit top 50 and top 10, and there are millions of podcasts When I started this show, I had a vision of a young girl who was sitting at the computer just Googling frantically, trying to figure out why she was so depressed, why she was so unhappy, why she thought and felt differently than the people that surrounded her. And that is a vision, of course, of all of us. It's a vision of me and my youth. It's a vision of so many of you who are out there listening. Thank you for five years of more support than my inner child could have ever imagined. When and if you feel lonely in your process now or ever, I hope you use what I'm saying and sharing to realize that there are people all over this world who feel like you, who think like you, who are highly sensitive, and who are walking the walk of healing and expanding their lives. And you are part of that tribe now and forever. Light and love. If you want to come hang out with me and our little cozy community at Patreon, come find us at patreon.com backslash emotional badass. Next month's live stream Q&A is refusing victim mentality. I'll be there live April 12th at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. And if you can't be there live, rest assured, all of our live streams are archived. They are ready for you at your convenience. And the beauty of any kind of group dynamic, even this kind of group live stream, is that other people show up and sometimes they ask the very question that you needed that you didn't even know you needed asked. That's the beauty of engaging this type of content. Light and love, and I will see you all live April 12th at 6 p.m. Mountain Time for Refusing Victim Mentality. Come ask your questions, submit them now. Light and love. I am an emotional badass. You were an emotional badass. And together, we are where Moxie meets mindful. Light and love. And I'll see you right here next time. Bye-bye.